If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My guest this week is author and biologist, Matt Ridley. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Now, firstly, I'd like to ask you about the current situation with COVID-19 and the Omicron variant. Why is this variant of such concern around the world? Uh, It's very infectious. Um, That seems to be clear from the early uh, reports from South Africa that it's it's highly, uh, not contagious, but infectious. In other words, can spread very fast. And that is a concern because obviously more people are going to catch it. But it's not necessarily more virulent. And in fact, there's some evidence that it might be milder, which would be great news. Based on this, was it right for the government, particularly in the UK and of course in governments around the world, was it right for them to reintroduce restrictions such as the compulsory face masks or even uh, certain travel bans or putting countries on the red list? I don't think those measures will help at all. I think it was already clear it was already out of South Africa, so a travel ban wouldn't have prevented it getting here. Um, And I think as for face masks, the evidence on whether they're effective is very ambiguous. Some studies suggest they might be, some suggest they aren't. Uh, And for something as infectious as this, uh, it probably would make a very little difference if at all. You know, and you can envisage a situation in which making face masks more mandatory actually has a counterproductive effect because it makes people feel reassured that they can go to big gatherings when they might not actually be safe to do so. Given that some of the evidence around this is suggesting that the Omicron variant has the potential to evade the effectiveness of the vaccines, why is there such a push from the UK government and indeed governments around the world to get people to take their third or even fourth vaccinations in some cases? Yeah, well, we don't know yet whether it evades vaccines. The latest from the Uh, World Health Organization seems to be that it doesn't actually, which is very encouraging. But it does have a a lot of mutations in the spike gene, which is the protein that the uh, vaccines target. And so um, uh, the, the you know the gene for the proteins that the, that the vaccines target. So um, it it is uh, you know a concern that it might have a sufficiently different spike that it evades the the, the antibodies. But I think the, the government is wise to push for boosters and more vaccinations because even if there is some degree of evasion, there's bound to be some degree of cross immunity. I mean, it's still very much the same spike. And so um, it could well make the difference between saving a life and not saving a life. 
um, uh, you know, it, it might not prevent you catching it. It might not prevent you getting so ill, but it 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 might save your life from actually dying. And so this idea that plan is from the Department of Health and Social Care and from the Prime Minister is that people are going to be having booster vaccinations roughly every four months. Do you think this is an effective strategy or do you think the need for vaccines could even reduce over time as new medications and therapeutics are designed and later brought to market? I hope we get to the point where we don't need to vaccinate. Um, that the virus becomes about as harmless as a common cold. There are, after all, 200 kinds of common cold. None of them are serious enough to, to warrant public health measures. Uh, four of them are coronaviruses, which probably started out as pretty nasty pandemics or epidemics. Um, so I, I think that getting to the goal where this is an endemic and very mild virus is probably realistic. Uh, and perhaps more realistic than keeping chasing it with new booster vaccines. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, and, and after all, we have now, you know, we searched for a vaccine for the common cold for decades and we didn't succeed. Maybe the, now with this new messenger RNA technology, which can develop vaccines much faster, maybe it does make sense to start vaccinating against common colds uh, and starting with coronavirus colds. Just on that, you wrote an article for The Telegraph recently in which you argued that the Omicron variant may have emerged as, as a result of modern treatments offered to patients. What did you mean by that? Well, there's some evidence that these new variants, the Alpha was a case in point, and maybe the Omicron, uh, first appeared in people who were being kept alive with heroic measures and they couldn't clear the virus from the system. So the virus was in them for weeks, if not months. And of course, if a virus is in a body for that long, that's many, many, many generations, and it will, it will evolve during that time. It will acquire mutations during that time. So the treatments like uh, antibody therapy being used to uh, keep very sick people alive, which of course we must try and do, nonetheless might have the, the counterproductive effect of generating the new variants. That's a fairly speculative piece of science. We can't be sure one way or the other, but it's a hypothesis that does need to be considered. Just on antibodies there, currently for COVID-19, the strategy is to take regular lateral flow or PCR tests to detect the virus. But do you think we should be moving towards the stage where actually testing for antibodies in the, the general public would be a, a better strategy to uh, get to a stage where the virus is endemic and we are living with it rather than deliberately seeking out where the virus is? Yes, it's hard to tell. I think I've been surprised by how ineffective test and trace has been in in slowing the spread of the virus. I thought it would be more effective. You know, we've got these fantastic molecular tools now to be able to detect the virus, also to detect antibodies. Um, I remember very early in the virus, the um, uh, public health officials saying, wouldn't it be great if we could detect who's who's got it, who's had it, so that we could get a, a, a pattern for, for, for this. Um, and there is an argument for saying that if you haven't got symptoms, you shouldn't be tested and isolated because you might be holding exactly that very mild version of the virus that we need to encourage to outcompete the nasty versions of the virus. You know, one of the nice possibilities is that if Omicron does turn out to be very mild, which there's some suggestions it might be, then it might drive Delta extinct. And Delta is a much nastier virus. This, I mean, Delta drove Alpha extinct and Alpha drove Wuhan extinct. So this does happen in this virus that one variant replaces the others um, by being more infectious. So the more infectious ones replace the less infectious ones. 
But it would be nice if the milder ones won the battle. Throughout the whole of the pandemic, strategy has been to primarily introduce restrictions to limit the spread of the virus. And of course, most notably, that has been lockdown. How much of an impact do you think lockdown has actually had on general immunity? Because we were essentially shut away from the rest of the world, staying in our homes and therefore not out going out and about catching other bugs, colds, viruses, as we usually would do. I think there is a problem there that by locking down, we did reduce the spread of colds. I certainly didn't have a cold for a year and a half um, during uh, the height of the pandemic. And when I got one, it was a stinker. Um, so there's some evidence that super colds, i.e., you know, that, that that the, 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 it was a bit worse when we caught up. And children, I think, when, by the time they went back to school in the autumn of 2021, a lot of them had been off for a lot of that time, uh, they did seem to get a rush of cold. So there is some degree of catch-up. So definitely goes on. I'm also concerned that particularly those very, very strict early lockdowns actually may have encouraged the virus to stay virulent, to stay harmful. And what I mean by that is that if you think about it, in the first lockdown, if you just had a few symptoms, you were told to stay at home. If, on the other hand, you got really sick, then you were taken to hospital. And we know that a huge number of people caught it in hospital from people who came to hospital with it. So these um, rather harmful versions of the virus were actually had a better opportunity to spread than the milder versions. And that may have interfered with a natural tendency for this virus to evolve to be milder over, over time. So based on that idea, were we right to lock down in the first place back in March 2020? Well, it's a very difficult question. I think we were too draconian in the early lockdown, you know, telling people they couldn't go outdoors and things was crazy because, you know, you weren't spreading it outdoors. I think there were horrible side effects from it. Um, I do think that when we didn't know what we were doing in March and how bad it was, it probably was necessary to take some pretty drastic action. I would have liked to see it be basically voluntary with a huge amount of persuasion rather than basically mandatory with police compulsion. That didn't feel right to me. And I think there are other parts of the world which showed that you could get pretty well the same result. I'm not saying they got a better result, but pretty well the same result uh, with persuasion rather than compulsion. Okay, well, well, let's move on and look at your new book that you've written with genetic engineering expert Alina Chan. It's called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. So without giving too much away, what's the main argument that you strike on how the virus started? Well, we set out to find out how it started because we think it's terribly important to prevent the next pandemic. We need to know how it started. And we both started out thinking it was probably just like SARS, just like MERS. It came out of an animal uh, sold in a market part of the food chain. And in, those, in the case of SARS and MERS, we knew within uh, a month or two that that was the case. We had a pattern of uh, contact tracing of early cases, and we had a pattern of infected animals that people were catching it from. Neither of those things happened in the case of SARS-CoV-2. There was no uh, pattern of early cases, and there were no infected animals. 80,000 animals have been infected in China, have been tested in China, and none of them were infected. So at that point, it became clear that uh, other possibilities needed to be taken seriously. And the fact that uh, Wuhan, of all the cities in the world, holds the biggest research program uh, on SARS-like coronaviruses in the world, but is not a place where those viruses are found naturally, does seem to point to us to the possibility we needed to take the lab leak seriously. And the more we looked into it, the more circumstantial evidence we found that it might indeed be that. And, and every time we thought we could rule out 
uh, something, we found that, well, actually, you couldn't. There was smoke here, and maybe there was a fire. So we, we were very open-minded. We, we examined both possibilities in the book. We have a chapter at the end saying, here's the best case we can make for it being um, something that happened in the market through people coming into contact with animals in the food chain. And then we have another chapter saying, here's the best case we can make that actually it came about as a result of an accident in the Wuhan Institute of Virology or one of the other labs in Wuhan. And uh, we lean towards the latter by the end. And that wasn't how we started. So why, why did you choose to take on this project when there are many institutions like the, the World Health Organization and there are other public health bodies around the world currently undertaking major inquests into the very question that you're, you're looking at? Well, the trouble is they're not. Australia called for an independent inquiry early on. It was slapped with trade sanctions. The World Health Organization said it was going to investigate. It then took nearly a year to uh, get permission to go into China uh, and uh, begin investigating. It then spent two weeks there, basically listening to what the Chinese scientists told it, and then held a press conference in which they endorsed a very shaky and implausible theory that it got into China on frozen meat, which suited the Chinese government, but didn't really fit the facts. So frankly, uh, the World Health Organization didn't do a proper job of investigating the origin of this virus. And then we found that many scientific laboratories weren't is interested in this question either. I mean, I think the Royal Society in Britain, the National Academies of Science in the United States, others should have been hot on the trail of this. And instead, it was mostly left to a few scientists, individuals, and uh, amateurs, you know, open source analysts who began to try to dig up information that would shed light on this question. And so um, actually, it, it, you know, the, the, the reason we had to write a book about this uh, was because we both thought it was an important question. We wanted to find the answer. We don't yet know the answer, but we're pretty shocked actually by how little effort Western scientists and Western journalists have put into pursuing this matter, on the whole, with some honourable exceptions. And you and your co-author, Alina Chan, you, you only met in person for the first time quite recently. So how did you find working together on this project remotely? It was an incredible gamble, particularly on her part. Um, uh, she published some very interesting stuff about this. We'd been in correspondence. I reckoned a book length treatment was the was the only way to go. I made the proposition to her that we should uh, uh, join forces and write a book because her um, molecular bio biological expertise is, is terrific. And although I've written three or four books on genomics, uh, you know, uh, I am still just a writer. Um, and uh, we began uh, putting together ideas, having long conversations over Zoom and other such platforms. And uh, then I started drafting chapters sent them to her, she redrafted them, sent them back, so on, several times, actually. Um, and at, throughout the whole of this, we never met in person because <laughs> uh, of the pandemic. Neither of us could, you know, I wasn't allowed to cross the Atlantic as a Brit and, and yeah. she was stuck in Boston. Uh, so um, it was actually very moving when at the uh, beginning of November this year, we met on the day that we unpacked the printed book for the first time. <laughs> well, it's, it's like that for so many people throughout lockdown, meeting people for the first time over Zoom, Teams, whatever it may be, and then it's meeting in person. That seems to be some of the symptoms of lockdown and something many people have experienced. But just, just to come back to the, the book, the, the idea of the, the lab leak, the idea really came to prominence under President Trump, and he, he was widely discredited for it at the time. 
do you think that idea was quashed and not ex explored because Donald Trump was promoting it and suggesting that was a cause? Or do you think that at the time there simply wasn't enough evidence to suggest that it could have been a plausible theory? I think it did play a role. I think the fact that Donald Trump um, endorsed uh, some version of the laboratory theory early on uh, made it very difficult for other people who uh, felt that opposing Donald Trump was more important than anything else uh, to then take that possibility seriously. Um, but I think it would have got very polarized anyway. Um, and by the way, it didn't end up being terribly polarized along, along party lines in the United States. So when the Biden administration took over from the Trump administration at the beginning of 2021, um, the uh, National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, put out some pretty strong statements about how China needed to provide more information and the lab leak needed to be taken seriously. And, and Biden then commissioned an inquiry by the intelligence agencies, which came forward with an, un, with an ambiguous and uncertain response. Uh, three of them thought it was slightly more likely not to be from a lab, and one of them thought it was moderately likely to be from a lab. So I don't know how you weigh those two conclusions, but, um, you know, it it's not the case that uh, the Trump administration thought it came from a lab and the Biden administration didn't. It's a possibility that was taken seriously under the Trump administration and has continued to be taken seriously under the Biden administration. So when the pandemic first started, almost every government around the world seemed more interested in just simply mitigating the impact of the virus and working around it, rather than actually confronting how it got into general circulation and began just as, as the book is doing. Do you think that was a mistake on the part of governments across the world to initially concentrate on the effects of COVID-19 rather than the causes? No, I, th I think it's inevitable that, that you, you're going to um, focus very hard on uh, how you stop it spreading in every country. Uh, you know, that's what a, the government's jobs were. But that didn't stop other people within government and elsewhere looking at this question of the origin. And we know from Jeremy Farrer's book, Spike, for example, that um, a number of senior virologists on both sides of the Atlantic were very seriously concerned when they first saw the genome of the virus that it might be genetically engineered. Uh, and they actually organized a meeting at the beginning of February to discuss this. So right at the start, Western scientists were asking this question. Very quickly after that, they decided to come down very hard on that suggestion and say it couldn't possibly be true, it could be ruled out as a conspiracy theory. They've never really been forthcoming with why they changed their mind on that. And that's something we would love to know. We've sought uh, emails through Freedom of Information, and what we've got is lots of emails, and they're all redacted. So we can't tell what they were saying in those emails. So it'd be nice to know what changed people's minds around then. So I don't think it's the case that um, it wasn't possible to think about this question early in the pandemic. And of course, the earlier you start on this, the, the warmer the trail, and the easier it would have been to find stuff out. So why do you think there was this almost a sense of reluctance to begin an investigation alongside managing the virus in the pandemic? I'm sure we both agree that this is probably one of the most important scientific questions that needs to be answered at the moment. So why do you think there has been that sense of reluctance? I'm surprised how many people I talk to, even today, who say, surely it doesn't matter. You know, it started, we're dealing with it. Why should, you know, why should we rake over the coals of this and, and, and fan the flames of, of controversy? And what they're effectively saying is, and they do sometimes explicitly say to me, because if we do find out 
that there was culpability, or at least accidental culpability, by a laboratory in Wuhan, um, that might lead to a deterioration between uh, the West and China in terms of diplomatic relations, and we can't have that. Well, I don't think that's good enough. I think the world needs to know. It needs to know to honour the memory of the 5 to 15 million people who died for a start. It needs to know to prevent the next pandemic. And it needs to know to deter bad actors who are watching this episode and wondering just how easy it is to get away with uh, a laboratory origin of a nasty virus. Um, you know, if, if the World Health Organization is going to turn up and give a sort of Potemkin press conference in which they um, basically endorse a wacky theory, then maybe the North Koreans could get away with deliberately doing one of these things. So we do need to take this possibility very seriously, I think. And I think um, it surprises me how, and, and, and I don't fully understand why, quite a lot of people are reluctant to, to look into this question. Just on China, the fact that the, the Chinese Communist Party did attempt to cover up this virus undoubtedly caused it to spread. But if the Chinese government had been upfront about COVID-19, to what extent do you think that a pandemic could have even been avoided? Oh, I think if the very first cases in mid-December, which turned up in hospitals, and which were pretty clearly not being caught directly from animals, you know, there was evidence right from the start that people were infecting each other, healthcare workers were getting affected and so on. If in, in mid to late December, the Chinese had rung the alarm bells, communicated with the rest of the world that they thought they had a human-human transmitting SARS-like coronavirus, um, and encouraged their own healthcare workers to take precautions, that would have made an enormous difference. Remember, the guys who blew the whistle on this in those hospitals um, who said, hang on, this looks scary. We've just had a patient in here who's got a, a disease very like SARS and is you know, at risk of dying. Uh, and this could be SARS all over again. And they warned each other on social media. They got punished for that. They got reprimanded and genuinely prosecuted in one or two cases for, for doing that. Now, if that hadn't happened, then I think it would have been much easier to nip this in the bud when there was still only maybe a few hundred cases at most, and they were all in Wuhan. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Chinese could have said to the rest of the world, if I were you, I would stop flights. We're stopping all flights out of Wuhan. We're going to shut it down. Uh, instead of which, right till the end of January, and of course, the Chinese New Year at the end of January is a time when a lot of Chinese tourists went abroad, um, uh, was a time when there was freedom of movement. And right up into the middle of January, the the Chinese authorities were saying there's no evidence of human-to-human -human spread, and the World Health Organization was echoing that message. That's pretty unforgivable, because it would have been possible to stop this in, in, in its early stages. To finish, it's clear that COVID-19 is it's here to stay with us, and we are going to have to learn to live with it, and it becomes endemic. So what do you think is the best way for us to do that? Well, I think we need to get back to normal living. I don't think we can go on uh, raising restrictions every time a new variant comes along. 
Um, and I think the best way to get back to normal living is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Uh, we're doing that brilliantly. Uh, you know, don't let's forget what a fantastic job the vaccination task force did in the UK. Mm -hmm. I had my booster today. I'm thrilled to have got it. Yes, there are side effects in some people. It's not a completely harmless thing. Vaccination never has been but it's a lot better than getting a serious disease. Okay, Matt Ridley, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show.